0: I have always been prone to all-consuming obsession with my favorite musicians. In fact, I can essentially break down my life into disparate chunks of fandom. Elementary school and early middle school were dedicated to Avril Lavigne. I had a whole wall of my bedroom dedicated to printouts, posters, and People magazine scraps related to her. I started learning guitar and writing songs because of Avril. Later middle school and high school were dedicated to Paramore, and of course, the band's frontwoman, Haley Williams. I have ample documentation of all my tragic pop-punk-inspired haircuts I used to get. I've since learned that the haircut isn't what made Haley hot, it was that Haley was hot in spite of her haircut, in addition to being the best alternative vocalist of our time. A combination of Haley, early-era Taylor Swift, and Bright Eyes led me to start performing the songs I'd written and working with my best friend to come up with songs together. All of this feels like child's play compared to my next phase, and I guess it kind of was. During the summer leading up to my first year of college, I was sworn into the cult-like following of a new Chantuse, a woman whose aesthetic and personal lore perfectly aligned with everything I wanted to be perceived as as an 18-year-old girl with no romantic or sexual experience, timeless, iconic, and desired by men. It also didn't hurt that she often would sing incredibly low, as I was and am known to do. I entered the first stages of my adulthood living by the gospel of the one and only Miss Lana Del Rey. And I wholeheartedly believe that without her influence, her music, and her legacy, I would know way less about what I'm personally capable of. And you are about to find out why. Welcome to Wholehearted, where we feel things all the way. Here we share stories of full-bodied commitment to the people, places, things, and ideas we believe in, for better or for worse. I'm your host, Hannah Ray Leach. Before I launch into this story, it feels necessary for me to acknowledge the fact that I have told and retold this story many, many different ways since it all happened, primarily back in 2014. It also feels necessary to acknowledge that I was literally made fun of online by former NYU classmates for loving Lana Del Rey so much. Like, I am what I am. I've been this way for years. Anyway, even though I definitely have more perspective on this whole subject now, it remains an integral part of my personal coming-of-age saga, and you are all listening to it, so welcome. I have never been genuinely nervous to share a story in this way before, and even though I've told this story a bunch of different ways, this angle is definitely the most truthful, and I've kind of been wrestling with whether or not I was even going to tell it this way. The whole time I was working on this, but I've decided that it's happening. So just get comfortable. So for those who aren't familiar, let me introduce Lana. Lana Del Rey is a singer-songwriter and Tumblr-era icon that first made waves in the media back in 2012 with her infamously bizarre SNL performance. Life over, I was like, no, stay here. The visual also adds a lot, so I would suggest you look it up if you never have. Even with her mainstream reputation somewhat in the toilet straight out of the gate, Lana's always had diehard fans. Her music and voice have been super distinct from the beginning, chock full of incredibly specific references to literature, movies, and general Americana. Elvis is my daddy, Marilyn's my mother, Jesus is my bestest friend. 16 and we had arrived. On skid row. there is a very densely constructed world of fantasy and some may say artifice contained in her music at the time she infamously described herself as a gangster nancy sinatra During her rise to fame, critics and fans alike were constantly trying to assess whether or not her stage and media personality was a persona, whether or not she really deserved all the attention she was getting, and why exactly she was so captivating as an artist. Her voice is what caught my attention initially, her low contralto that sounded natural and sensual, not like other pop stars who'd sometimes whisper out low notes for the sake of contrast to whatever high note they were bound to belt in the next 10 seconds. After her voice, there were the songs, and more specifically, the lyrics and the stories that her songs told. They were all batshit. Lana's first album and following EP were full of zingers, including but not limited to. My like Pepsi Cola and. Drop it like it's the Most iconically, there's the ride music video. At the beginning, Lana delivers this monologue, all with a slow-burning montage of her existence as an L.A.-based ne'er-do-well drifting from man to man and locale to locale via bikerying. I was in the winter of my life. And the men I met along the road were my only summer. I just re-watched this video for the sake of this recording, and I am, like, mortified that I loved this so much. You should really watch the video for the sake of cultural literacy, but in the video, she does a lot of posing with an American flag, maybe has sex up against a pinball machine, shoots guns with drunk friends, regrettably claims that I believe in the country America used to be. and most regrettably wears a giant Native American headdress while singing that she is fucking crazy. In a now infamous interview with The Guardian, she's asked about the authenticity of the life depicted in the ride video. The article reads, okay, she concedes, I can see how that video would raise a feminist eyebrow, but that was more personal to me. It was about my feelings on free love and what the effect of meeting strangers can bring into your life, how it can make you unhinged in the right way and free you from the social obligations I hope we're growing out of in 2014. How much did that video reflect her actual life? Oh, 100%. Hanging out with biker gangs and going off with different guys? Yeah, she says, looking away with an awkward laugh. This was the shit that always got me. I was obsessed with how Lana was so committed to the character that she would straight up tell people that her work was all based on lived experience. Not only did she believe in the kindness of strangers but she actually had depended on it, or so she wanted us to believe. Not only did she sing about being a much younger other woman, but she has been one and probably has a text from her older boyfriend unread on her phone in this very moment, perhaps. Things really came to a head in my life when Lana's second album, Ultraviolence, came out in June 2014. I was home for the summer, staying with my parents in the house I lived in throughout high school and listening to Ultraviolence constantly. In a way that would never be accepted today, the album pretty literally glorified being degraded and undervalued and, well, being sad and sexy. At its worst, the title track's chorus was a pastiche of an old Crystal song with its lyric, He Hit Me and It Felt Like a Kiss. And at its best, the narrator of the album used her being female and being hot to win money, power, and glory at every opportunity. Something about the music and the aesthetic of the entire album made me personally feel challenged to create my life in the image of the fantasy world Lana was creating. A part of me knew it was dumb. I knew the difference between art and reality at that point. But in my mind, my summer in Ohio was so profoundly low stakes, there was no reason not to try making life imitate art. It also didn't hurt that I was brandishing a new sense of confidence and bravery after surviving my first year in New York and my first heartbreak. Details in episode one of (laughs) Wholehearted. I felt that my emotional experience didn't match with my physical experience, and I wanted to take matters into my own hands to amend that situation. I had nothing to lose and everything to gain, and even if I gained bad or toxic things, I'd be gone by the end of the summer anyway. The story really begins when I started my summer job. I was working as a hostess at one of the most beloved restaurants in our town, a place where I would see people I knew constantly. The restaurant is the only place that would hire me knowing I would be leaving in just a few months, and it is the place where I met Brad. Brad is not his real name, but we'll call him that for the duration of the story. Brad was the hot waiter at the restaurant, the type of guy that, were you in middle school, would give you butterflies when he asked you how you wanted your burger cooked. He was the sort of guy who could pull off a puka shell necklace or a single earring in that very stuck-in-a-restaurant-in-Ohio, early-2000s-inspired type way. I was definitely, definitely smarter than him, but all are equal in the world of food service. There was a significant age difference between us. I was turning 19 in July, and he had turned 26 in May. He had a girlfriend back home in California, regardless of my infatuation with his vaguely creepy yet attractive presence. I knew there was no chance of anything happening, but for some reason, I had a feeling that something could. For those of you keeping track, if things were to happen between us, I would have been younger than him by a then significant chunk and would be playing the role of the other woman, a role that Lana was constantly singing about being. So things were really lining up. This is when I decided that he would perhaps be the first person I'd ever sleep with. I really didn't have any lofty dreams or expectations about losing my virginity, which like I hate to even use that word. I didn't want the bed to be adorned with rose petals or to be in love. In fact, ideally, I'd like to do it with someone who wouldn't care about the encounter much at all. So Brad was a perfect fit. He would mildly flirt with me on the days we worked together, the sight of our names parallel to each other's on the schedule setting my gears turning. It started innocently enough, just with him drawing smiley faces on my table map. But it only escalated from there. One time he approached me while I was scrubbing the floor and said, you look good on your knees. He was gross, but he would definitely get the job done. When he coyly slid me his number on a takeout order form one fateful evening, I was over the moon. I sprinted to my car and blasted some Lana song about being needed and simultaneously ignored. For once, I was the special one. I was being pursued by the cool older brother, the hottest guy in school. It felt unreal. He invited me to hang out after work that weekend over the phone, and I immediately said yes. I'm pretty sure I even put up his phone number on a bulletin board over my bed. Not a very cool or detached or Lana move, but whatever. I was still me. I imagined all the towny shit we'd do, me going to bars underage, not getting carded because I was with him, an obviously older man, hanging out with his friends as they would laugh and drink, and I'd stand quietly in the corner, smoking cigarettes at a gas station at 2am. I didn't even smoke cigarettes. Oh yeah, it was all coming together. However, as we started to hang out outside of work, I slowly started to realize that he was less on-brand hot older brother of a friend than I had built him up to be. First of all, the first time I saw him outside of his serving uniform, he was wearing a Big Bang Theory t-shirt, which is just generally unacceptable. A different time, he insisted upon hanging out in a metro park in Twinsburg after it closed. He brought beers and his old laptop. Eventually, we were just sitting in abject darkness, drinking and listening to this weird, weird, weird garage band engineered rap. His raps, full of incredibly forced rhymes all having to do with having sex. I was halfway through one beer when a cop showed up, so I had to chuck my bottle into the woods and just hope to God that I wasn't made to call my parents. I was a legal adult at the time, so there's really no reason why that would have been a thing I had to do, but, like, frighteningly, that just shows how young I was emotionally when that was the worst-case scenario in my mind. Finally, Brad made a move. A few nights later, we were watching a movie he insisted upon, Cabin in the Woods, which he refused to believe included even a trace of irony, and he started kissing me. That's when he asked why I was wearing jeans. I normally wore dresses to work. Did I wear jeans just because I knew I was hanging out with him after? It was at that point that I told him I had to be home soon. It was 2.30 a.m., and I did live in my parents' house. I literally had to physically remove myself from his clutches, but I somehow got back into my old Honda CRV and drove away, practically hyperventilating from the pure embarrassment of the whole evening. It was getting more difficult to will myself into believing that this wasn't a dumb idea. But even after all that, I still kept hanging out with him. In a sick way, the more bizarre and terrifying things became, the more determined I was to see it through, to see just how much weirder it could possibly get. The more times we hung out, the more clearly I had a decision to make. Was I going to let this happen? This guy was clearly not fully conscious as a human, but did I care? Would Lana care? I kept calling my own bluff about it all. We went to Arby's together a few days later, where I found out how much he wanted his, quote, fat bitch stepmom to die. I told myself to just ignore it. He told me about his open relationship, how he had this girlfriend back in California, and the distance was what allowed him to see other people. I, on the other hand, never told him anything of substance about my personal life. I never had to because he practically never stopped spouting details about his. Despite our age difference and stereotypes of my then adolescence and my femaleness, it became obvious that I might not have been the one that was searching for validation. Brad clearly needed it more. And that's why he was hanging out with a 19-year-old college girl. While he was the kind of person that believed catcalling happens because women reject men too frequently and that the majority of college campus sexual assault cases were the result of false reports, his complete willingness to open up his rancid psyche to me was still something, or at least just flattering enough to keep me around in 2014. His beliefs were revolting and his conviction to them borderline disturbing, but he still somehow had me believing he wasn't a bad guy deep down. I don't know why. Despite all of this, I did what I had set out to do. And we did finally sleep together. I have excruciatingly detailed journal entries about it that make my skin crawl to this very day. When it was happening, he proclaimed that he couldn't believe I felt this close to him. I didn't feel that close to him. I just wanted it to happen and then for it to be done. After I refused to shower with him, because honestly, what the fuck? I asked him to show me out and he did reluctantly, walking and adjusting his drunk blow here emblazoned belt buckle all the way out of the house. Once we got outside, he turned to me and said, now you can go find someone really special. And shut my car door with a rather grand sense of finality. We had just one more of these truly rapturous liaisons the night before I left for school again, the very last night I was in Ohio. When we left his house, he insisted we go see his high school friends at a barbecue. It turned out to be at the Veterans Hall, which was almost as surprising as the fact that most of his friends were lesbians. Obviously, I'm very at home with lesbians, but I felt super weird there and begged him to drop me off at home until I realized that I didn't have a house key, so he had to drop me off like used goods at the McDonald's where my little sister was. So when will I see you next? He asked from the driver's seat. I remember this so clearly. His eyes filled with maybe genuine emotion, maybe sadness, maybe relief, maybe rage. Would he tell this story and describe me like his stepmom, as a fat bitch that he also wanted to die? I told him that I would be home in October, and he told me he'd come visit me before then. And I said, sure, even though I knew that wouldn't happen. I knew that this chapter was done, and I was really glad. On the eight-hour minivan drive to school the next day, I didn't really reflect on my actions. I thought about classes and I thought about how excited I was to move in with my best friend. The fact that Brad was back at the restaurant polishing silverware and perhaps even enchanting a table of ladies over an order of crumbly crust mac and cheese didn't even cross my mind. Because in my mind, I had used him to get rid of this pesky virginity thing that had been making me feel like garbage. And I won in more ways than just that, because in my Lana-washed brain, getting it on with a dumb, trashy older guy was something glamorous and dangerous, and would read exactly how I wanted on paper. Hannah loses V-card in a salacious slang, having seduced Solon's hottest ne'er-do-well. In actuality, the story turned out, well, exactly like how I've described it. But as my sophomore year of college began, Brad called me on almost a daily basis, keeping me updated on the politics of our formerly shared workplace, who had been arrested since I left, etc. One day, I stopped calling him back. He had no use to me anymore, so there was no point of being a sounding board to his degenerate thoughts anymore. However, as we are all one to do with exes of any variety, I still frequented his Facebook. I savored how utterly severed I was from his existence, watching him post deep-fried memes and centrist, lukewarm political takes. Until one day, he was tagged in a photo with a toddler, a pretty little girl with dark hair and an eerily similar facial structure to his own. I, ever the conspiracy theorist, was ready to believe the little girl to be his. More and more photos of Brad with this kid were posted until one day, someone commented, she looks just like her daddy, confirming my suspicions. Equally shocked and thrilled at my hunch being proven correct, I stared at the photo on my screen. Suddenly, there were no more secrets. Did this Facebook discovery tell me that I hadn't been given the keys to his soul as thoroughly as I had thought? I was so convinced that Brad had shared with me every detail of his crummy life from his open relationship to his preference in bougie craft beers, I thought I knew all there was to know. But I didn't. I didn't even know who the kid's mom was, and truly, I had no right to know. We weren't on that level, and I had known that all along when it came to my own personal life. The power I felt with holding my true self from him whilst he poured out his entire greasy soul to me was something I had never experienced before, and I relished it. But it turned out to be a total illusion. I texted him a few months after I put the pieces of his paternity together in a moment of weakness and curiosity. I said, hey, this is random, but do you have a daughter, lol? He read the message at 4.28 a.m. and never responded. We haven't spoken since, and he has since married the woman who was his long-distance girlfriend at the time of our affair, or whatever we're calling it. I'm 24 now, still younger than Brad was during that whole conquest, and I still don't understand how he had the nerve. But the good news is that even with all the strides we've made as a society regarding consent and power dynamics and sex since 2014, I am still 100% confident that this was an entirely consensual and relatively well-negotiated fling. Plus, it's obviously a fun story, and I felt that it gave me a lot of adult mileage. But as many times as I've told this story and all the different angles I've picked, I've always felt like I've ignored the truth behind it all. And the truth is that Lana Del Rey made me do it. Like she didn't personally reach out to me and say, Hannah, sleep with Brad, but she may as well have. I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out why it feels that way. And this is the conclusion I've come to. Lana Del Rey's music glorifies a lot of things but to me, it primarily glorified lowering one's standards when it came to men. When I finished my freshman year of college, I had just spent years in a very emotionally taxing non-relationship. Again, see episode one for more details. And felt very emotionally leathered by the time it was over. I was insecure about the fact that I didn't have the sexual resume to match that, and I was determined to change. If I went outside of my peer group to gain some basic experience... No one would really know enough to judge me, and I would prove to myself that I was brave and cool and some sort of pretty young thing. I can only imagine that from the outside, the central conceit of all of my interactions with Brad was that I didn't know better and that I thought he really understood and liked me in my full depth. The truth was that I was fully aware that he was kind of a scumbag for even being with me in the first place, and therefore I had no problem being sociopathically simple with him. Lana's music was the perfect tool for me. However, I don't think I'm alone in using Lana's music this way. In fact, I think a big reason why Lana's fans are so fervent and impassioned centers around the fact that she makes ugly feelings, heartbreak, hopelessness, spite, and submission into objectively beautiful music that feels timeless. You can get lost in the world her music creates one of velvet and hydrangeas, old rich millionaires and biker daddies with warrants out for their arrests, mobsters and arson and fancy liquor and boarding schools. A world so fantastical and unlike the one 99% of her fans are living, but one that contains emotions so tragically commonplace that it makes the listener feel like they could be the girl in the song just as easily as Lana has imagined herself to be. Lana throws a silk sheet over feelings of inadequacy and desolation and calls it glamour. And for that, we love her. Today, Lana has changed for sure. She's dating a cop. She goes to church. It's weird. But on the brighter side, we've seen a stark difference in her public persona and artistic choices ever since the election of 2016 and even more after the downfall of Harvey Weinstein. She cut songs involving abuse and Weinstein references from her live shows and stopped playing the tortured, formerly homeless, sex worker, torch singer character in interviews. Her music relies a lot less heavily on cultural references nowadays, but she hasn't entirely eliminated them. Because that's like her whole thing. Lana's latest album is called Norman Fucking Rockwell. The title track is about a man, an artist, that the narrator is seeing. The lyrics read... You talk to the walls when the party gets bored of you. But I don't get bored, I just see you through. Why wait for the best when I could have you? Because you're just a man, it's just what you do, head in your hands as you color me blue. It's almost eerie to me how much these sentiments overlap with how I now perceive my summer with Brad five years ago. Especially, why wait for the best when I could have you? I felt like waiting for the best would mean waiting for a miracle, and when you're trying to fit into the live fast, die young aesthetic, who has time for any patience? I certainly didn't, and Lana would have never. She still claims that she was never embodying a persona and that she never will, but times change and even Lana, whose entire brand was built around textbook risk behaviors and bad men, had to grow up and leave the chaos behind. Or at the very least, point at the chaos, laugh at it, and see that life is about more than just playing a dumb girl role for dumb male attention. And I, ever the disciple of Lana, have unwittingly done the same. I still love Lana's music, of course. I just take it all much, 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 much less literally now. Deciding to share this story on Wholehearted was difficult. Not just because my parents and probably even grandparents are 100% listening. but because I hate having to admit that I was this easy to influence for this long. I don't want my mom to think that her tireless vetting of the media I consumed as an elementary school student was all for naught. There was nothing anyone could have done to stop me at the time. I was an overly confident 19-year-old hell-bent on receiving relatively taboo male attention after years as nothing more than a crying theater girl. I'm also very aware that I got extremely lucky that things went the way they did. It was very convenient that Brad didn't end up being totally unhinged or that I didn't get some sort of citation for drinking underage in that park. I'm not really giving this sort of stunt my full endorsement. But both the best and worst part of the story is this. I'm glad no one tried to stop me because even with the perspective that I have now, if I had the option to go back to 2014 and live that summer all over again, I would not change a thing because it made me feel in control of my destiny It made me feel powerful, even if that power was an illusion. And that if I just believed in that illusion of power hard enough, I could believe I was everything I wasn't. Elusive, mysterious, and born to be bad, even if it was just for one summer. So, do you have a story like this? Have something equally mortifying to share? Why don't you send me an email? or a voice memo to hannah at wholeheartedpodcast.com if your life choices were influenced by your favorite pop stars i can i cannot be the only one i really refuse to believe that make sure to send this episode to the lana stan in your life see if it checks out see if it tracks i bet it will this episode of wholehearted was written edited and produced by me hannah Rayleigh. All of the amazing Lana-inspired music was created by Josh Perlman hall and majorly helpful story assistance was provided by Isabel Robertson. This episode was mixed by Sean Rule Hoffman and our show artwork was created by Ayanna Cheston. Also, make sure you're signed up for the newsletter. My dad emailed me this week and said that I made it too hard to read. So I'm evolving. The newsletter is evolving, as am I. Don't you want to watch this evolution? I think you do. So go to wholeheartedpodcast.com, scroll to the bottom, put in your email. It's that simple. Anyway, I hope you still respect me as a human after this episode, and I cannot wait for you to join me next time.